0: Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne.
1: Mark Hennick's TEDx talk about the stranger who saved his life from a teenage suicide attempt has been viewed millions of times. His search for the man in the brown jacket whose bravery and strong arms kept him from falling to his death is recalled in Mark's new book, So-called Normal, a memoir of family depression and resilience and mark is my guest coming up
2: this was one of my main objectives in uh, digging deep into my story in the book it's to show people that suicidality i think generally speaking uh, isn't uh, doesn't come out of nowhere it comes from a whole broad context a social context and especially a family context uh not only of stigma but of our life experiences as well and I think that was certainly the case with me as well. As you say, you know, growing up in a home where there wasn't a whole lot of affection, not, at least initially, uh, not for any other reason that it just wasn't normal. And that's one of the reasons why I call the book so-called normal, because as I was writing it, you know, my sister said to me at one point, you know, Mark, why, why do you talk about all these traumas? Uh, this is just the way it was. It was normal. And I said, no, it, it wasn't normal, actually. Not everybody grows up like this. <laughs> and, but mm-hmm. when, when it's all you know, I think um, you get used to it and you, and you you try to downplay it as not traumatic. And, you know, I felt that very keenly when I was a young man where. Uh, if I was struggling with something, I was surrounded by this idea of, you know, life is hard. We were we were raised a Newfoundland version of Irish Catholic. Life is hard. That's just kind of a, a through line, I think, in some ways. It builds character. Uh, this Maybe this is just my cross to bear. I've heard all these things. That wasn't helpful for me. Uh, it was only when I was able to break free from that and realize that I could use those stories for good, use those experiences for good, that I didn't fall down that well of despair that I think sometimes comes with those kinds of cultural ideas.
0: A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis.
1: Mark Hennick
0: grew up in
1: Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, a community prominently settled in Canada by 19th century Irish immigrants. He is in high demand as an international keynote speaker on mental health recovery. And he is also the CEO for Strategic Health Consulting. By age 15, depression and anxiety had taken their toll on Mark Hennig. Clinging to an outside girder on an overpass, a deeply troubled Hennig made the only decision he thought he could, and he let go. Hennig's new book, so-called Normal, a memoir of family depression and resilience, aims to break the relentless stigma of mental illness through his candid, intensely personal account of his youth, the events that led to that fateful night on the bridge, and the experiences and transformation that followed. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Sherlock, sure it's grand to have you back. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said... A family like yours.
2: Learn more about adopting a teen at AdoptUSKids.org. You can imagine the reward. Brought to you by the US Department of Health and Human Services, Kids, and the Ad Council.
1: My guest is Mark Hennick, author of So-Called Normal, a memoir of family, depression and resilience. Mark has appeared in hundreds of television, radio, print and online features about mental health. Mark has a new book out, so-called Normal, a memoir of family, depression and resilience. I first asked Mark to tell us more about his past suffering and about his attempted suicide on an overpass in Cape Breton.
2: Yeah, you know, everything that I do now, professionally and and otherwise, uh, really comes back to these core moments in my childhood. I was still a child when I was struggling with severe and persistent mental illness, uh, when I was uh, in and out of hospital more than half a dozen times for increasingly dangerous suicide attempts. Uh, and the ones I, I told two short stories in a 2013 uh, TED Talk that I that I delivered. Uh, and the first one was kind of my very first um outward indication of my suicidality. I had gone to school that day, and I had been drawing little pictures in the margins of my test. And that was the first time anybody, my teacher, had ever found out that I'd actually been thinking about ending my life for, by that point, several years, as, as I was able to realize through writing the book. And then the other story that I told in the TED Talk Uh, occurred a couple of years after that first time where not getting help from the system, you know, kind of getting bounced around in a mental health care system that not only largely didn't help me, um, but in fact in some ways made me worse uh, you know in in experiencing some of the traumas uh, of a broken mental health care system so the second story I tell was having reached a place in my mind where I felt like I was completely helpless and hopeless that if all these really smart people uh, couldn't fix me uh, then maybe I was the problem maybe there was something wrong with me so that's when I uh, enacted a plan to go to a bridge in my hometown in uh, Cape Breton Nova Scotia I climbed up over the the railing uh, and if it wasn't for a complete stranger who happened to stop and talk to me and then eventually reach out and grab me when i let go of the railing if it wasn't for him uh, i wouldn't have have um, experienced that pivotal moment of somebody actually reaching out to care for me and, and that's really the moment that my whole life changed
1: did you reconnect with this stranger at any time
2: Yeah, we did. So we, um, I didn't know who this person was. He was just a complete stranger for more than a dozen years, Um, and I didn't even fully realize what he had done for me. Right? You don't realize, or, or I think there's a kind of a romantic um, idea of what recovery from mental illnesses look like. That you know, suddenly you find a pill that works for you, or you find a therapist who unlocks all your deepest um, traumas. And for me, anyway, that wasn't the case. It was a much longer road. And it wasn't until more than a dozen years later, after I had done the TED Talk, in which I talked about this guy, I only knew him as the the stranger in the light brown jacket who saved my life. Um, It was only after that, that I really started to get this drive inside me to find out if this guy was even real. Because my secret was that when I stood on that famous red dot on the TED stage, uh, that I didn't even know if this stranger in the light brown jacket was a real person, uh, or if he was just some uh, necessary fiction that I had made up in my head in order to make my story make sense. Uh, because I, I, I had learned to doubt so much of my own thoughts and feelings from that time in my life. It was such a troubled time in my life. Um, so when I eventually did reach out for the public's help in finding this stranger who I knew very little about, uh, the public helped me uh, through the through my work in, in media, uh, and uh, I went on a national uh, morning news program here in Canada and asked for the public's help. I asked on my Twitter and Facebook pages, and within a couple of hours, we ended up finding out this guy was, in fact, real, uh, and that, in fact, he had already written me a letter in case someday he ever found me, because he never knew that I was still alive, too.
1: Wow, it's an incredible story because you write about that in your book, which we'll talk about shortly. He made a deep impression, obviously, he saved your life, but then there were other characters in that scene that day who didn't make such a positive impact, and this was a turning point. You saw a lot about your own life very clearly.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think what struck me most about that that moment on that bridge, you know, I was at my lowest possible point, or one of the lowest possible points I, I now realize of my life. And there were uh, two figures, two strangers who really stood out to me. There was this man in the light brown jacket who was talking to me, who stopped. He was the only one, only other person in the world as far as I was concerned. But as he talked to me, you know, I, I, and this is one of the core concepts of my TED talk as well that really kind of caught fire with people was that when you're in a crisis, it's like everything around you collapses. This perceptual collapse happens where you can't see anything outside of that moment and that crisis and that that internal necessity, it seems like, uh, to end your life. Even though that that's a, a lie that your depression is telling you, uh, you don't know any differently because that's the function of the disorder is to limit your perception in that way. So as the stranger talked to me, he sort of um, inflated or or breathed a little bit more expansiveness into that perception. And that's when I realized that there were, in fact, a lot of other people around us at that time that the police had arrived. They had put up barricades on either side of the bridge. Crowds had started to gather at the barricades, even though this was late at night on a Sunday night. You know, I grew up in a small town where everybody listens to the uh, chatter on the police radios to see if there's any, anything interesting happening. Uh, so crowds had come out, and, and I remember hearing a group of young men off on the sidelines, and one of them shouted out for me to jump, and he called me a coward. And when he did that, because I was in such a fragile place, I mean, literally balanced on the edge of about an inch and a half or so of concrete, but in my mind as well on this this fragile edge of, of life and death in my own mind, uh, when he said that, it reminded me of all the reasons that I went there in the first place, that it just seemed like a, such a callous and uncaring world filled with people who were content to stand on the sidelines. Uh, so when he said that, when that other stranger said that, that's when I let go. And, and that's when the stranger in the light brown jacket grabbed me.
1: He had an interesting chatter with you when you were attempting to make that leap. And it was very soothing. I mean, he wasn't judging you. He was it was an unusual kind of a conversation. It was almost very relaxed.
2: Yeah. And, you know, that's what struck me most about it. I, I, you know, I had blocked out so much. Um, external stimuli and other things that were happening in that time. But what that's, I think, the piece in his approach that really connected with me and got through to me was that when he approached me, he didn't sound like a doctor. He didn't sound like an expert or, you know, because I had talked to so many of those people over the course of the, the couple of years that led up to that moment. Um, and I felt like that all those other so-called experts were just treating me like I was a broken down car on the side of the road, right? Like I was just a, a thing to be fixed uh, as though I were broken. Uh, but that's not what this guy did. He just approached me and he talked to me about the most mundane things it seemed like, you know, about my family and my interests and school. And uh, it really felt like an authentic conversation. And it didn't matter that I was struggling necessarily, uh, that he, he was just interested in getting to know me. And I think that's really what made the difference. Um, who is this gentleman? Can we identify him? So when I um, asked for the public's help in finding him, uh, I had found out all around that he had written me a letter, very first words in it. Uh, I recorded myself and posted the video to YouTube uh, reading this letter for the very first time. Uh, and he introduced himself in the very first line. He said, hi, Mark, my name is Mike. And as soon as he, as soon as Mike had a name, as soon as he wasn't the stranger in the light brown jacket as he'd been for, you know, twelve years, thirteen years prior to that, uh, it it all of a sudden hit me that he was real. And if if he was real, it meant my story was real because he he had the bravery and the vulnerability to actually see the world from my perspective. And he recounted that to me and his experience of my trauma, what that was like for him. Uh, And it was such an incredibly um, moving and healing moment for me in many ways. Um, So we, I I live in Toronto, Canada now. So we brought him and his partner up to Toronto because I knew I needed to meet him again in person. Uh, And the moment that we did, the first thing he did, he didn't didn't say a word. He just made direct eye contact with me and he wrapped his arms around me again, just like he did the first time we were together. Uh, But this time he was giving me a hug. And it was just this wonderful way to bring full circle the story that I had been telling that had been core to my personal narrative for so long to finally be able to meet this person and and to thank him for everything that he did for me.
1: Wow. It's a sweet story. Well, it didn't sound like you got enough or a lot of hugs growing up. You grew up in a very abusive environment and there was a lot of domestic turmoil and you were bullied. It wasn't a very happy environment. Was that what led up to this A suicide attempt that you just described. There were also other suicide attempts.
2: There were, and you know, this is what I. This was one of my main objectives in uh, digging deep into my story in the book. It's to show people that suicidality, I think, generally speaking, uh, isn't. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes from a whole broad context, a social context, and especially a family context, uh, not only of stigma but of our life experiences as well. Um, You know, there's this this great phrase that's becoming more popular now. I think that Oprah has started using it more and more uh, that we need to to ask less what's wrong with you and instead ask what happened to you. And I think that was certainly the case with me as well. As you say, you know, growing up in in a home where there wasn't a whole lot of affection, not at least initially, uh, not for any other reason that it just wasn't normal. And that's one of the reasons why I call the book so-called normal, because as I was writing it, you know, my sister said to me at, my, at one point, you know, Mark, why, why do you talk about all these traumas? Uh, this is just the way it was. It was normal. And I said, no, it, it wasn't normal actually. Not everybody grows up like this. <laughs> and, but mm-hmm. when, when it's all, you know, I think, um, you get used to it and you, and you, you try to downplay it as not traumatic. And, You know, I felt that very keenly when I was a young man where. Uh, if I was struggling with something, I was surrounded by this idea of you know life is hard. We were we were raised a Newfoundland version of Irish Catholic. Life is hard. That's just kind of a a through line. I think in some ways it builds character. Uh, this maybe this is just my cross to bear. I've heard all these things, and that wasn't helpful for me. Uh, it was only when I was able to break free from that and realize that I could use those stories for good, use those experiences for good, that I didn't fall down that. Um, that well of despair that I think sometimes comes with those kinds of cultural ideas.
1: On your mother's side, were the cost against the Irish Catholic, devout Irish Catholic family, and then the Hennicks European extraction, I presume. So a lot of Irish settling that community over the years, you mentioned how there were more, as I said, more fiddles per capita than anywhere else in the world. Um, mm-hmm. Just describe the community. How large was it? And it yeah. sounded as also it was, a community in decline in some ways. The steel plant was gone. Even Mm -hmm. the Catholic Church, which was a very strong presence, was no longer that vital in a lot of people's lives.
2: Yeah, very much so. You know, it was a... Uh, uh, during both world wars, it was a thriving area economically and uh, and otherwise, it was a diverse area. Um, European immigrants came uh, from all over. Irish settlements had been in Cape Breton since, you know the early to mid 1700s. Uh, and still is is the majority Irish and Scottish the majority of the the heritage of the people there, um, but when the steel plants were running, it was the place to be. It was the the steel making center of the eastern seaboard in many ways, providing uh, rail and uh, and um, equipment for the war effort. But then after the war was over uh, and the coal mines had started to close down, the steel plant had uh, they tried to find a buyer for it in in many ways, but. Uh, but those efforts dried up. Uh, And when I was growing up, most of the plant was still there. Most of the industry buildings were still there, but they were largely, you know, kind of collapsing, falling down, spurring memories in childhood is that if there'd be an announcement of that something was being blown up or torn down, that we would come out to watch, you know, whether it was the big smokestacks or uh, the old Coke ovens where they used to prepare the fuel for the, for the steel plant. So that was often an event in my hometown, which was, you know, at the time it seemed big but it was a couple thousand people and now that I live in a major metropolitan area it's very much a, a small town um, so you know it was it was very much a town in, de- in decline and and my um, my big family you know my mother was one of uh, uh, 15 kids my father was one of 16 um, all of them all of their families had to find other ways to uh, make do to make ends meet and you um, many didn't. So it was kind of the type of place where the culture was very much so that everybody has it hard, that people don't really get out of here alive, (laughs) that you just kind of make it and you do what you have to do to survive. And I think that that hardens people, um, you know, for better or worse, you you harden out of necessity. um, But when you do that, it also closes off that part of yourself that keeps you open to the emotions of others. Um, So I think that that's partly what happens in in, uh, situations like that.
1: So in some ways, it was an economically depressed area. Mm-hmm. There's a phrase in your book where the Costigans were always advised to eat everything on your plate. Because I, yes. I guess they experienced, like all Irish historically, the lack of food or enough food.
2: Yes, very much. And I, I keenly remember my grandmother all the time. We wouldn't be allowed to leave the table. Well, she had a still.
1: name. She had a nickname. Or-
2: her name was Agnes uh, Agnes Costigan. And uh, we used to call her Nana Egg. Um, but we would never leave any food, any soup or whatever it was uh, on in our bowl or on our plate because we would hear about it from her. Um, and that was very much the culture too, was that that you you uh, don't waste what's given to you, um, and I think that's a great lesson uh, in many ways, uh, in in terms of practicing gratitude, something that I do very consciously now. Um, but it also came with it, inherent in it, is this scarcity mentality. It's this idea that um, that somebody's going to take it away from you, and I think in some ways there's a there's a sort of an unspoken through line through the book um, that I've de- I developed this scarcity mentality toward connection and affection. Uh, I was always afraid that people would leave me um, because I felt like I had either experienced it or had come close to experiencing it so many times before. Um, so I think in, in some ways that that my, my grandmother and my mother's um, Irish Catholic roots and my father's side for that matter too, they didn't have it any better off. I think that scarcity uh, um, informed my own emotional well-being as well.
1: I read the book, So-Called Normal, It describes your early childhood. Your mom had suffered a lot and her husband walked out, essentially. Your your dad walked out and then she had this relationship with your stepdad. Mm -hmm. And that was quite traumatic. Some of the experiences you lived through because you come across in the book as somebody who likes to please. And you're a bit of a perfectionist and maybe had a sensitive nature and your stepdad was this hardened, rugged individual. Mm. And he brought you all to live in his house, which was set against a hundred acres in the background. He was a sort of a country guy, um, but he, he he had the tough guy image, but maybe he had his own vulnerabilities. But he also he also was in a in an accident at work, and that may have affected his his own physical health, perhaps his mental health. But he was a tough guy when the wrong moments occurred. Just take us through all of that, all those back and forth from your dad to your stepdad, and all the trauma in between, and how that impacted you and may have contributed to what you suffered.
2: Yeah, you know, this is, uh, there are so many dualities that I realized. Is um, through the course of writing the book, and so many moments of tension between uh, opposites, and this this was certainly one of them. Where um, you know my father left uh, left us when I was four, um, and I really had this deep sense of uh, abandonment from a very young age. I couldn't understand, and we didn't talk about it either. I couldn't understand why he left. Uh, and, and it's not that we weren't allowed to talk about it. It just wasn't, it was one of those, another one of those things where it wasn't normal. We didn't sit down and have a conversation with our mother, you know, your dad's not going to be around anymore. And here's why, and to help us understand life just went on life is hard, right? People leave and, and nobody knows why sometimes. So when we ended up moving in, uh, with my stepfather, another very complicated, um, person, complicated character in the book, because I think in some ways, Uh, In many ways, and I I made sure to to characterize this, it provided us with more stability than we had before. Um, It it gave us a certain sense of uh, reliability on the good side. But then as the layers started to peel away, we realized, like you mentioned, that there was a lot more, there was a lot of other stuff going on there. And we were surrounded by this culture of toxic masculinity, uh, of control of virtually everything that we did. And and this was really reflected in the change in our physical environment as well. I mean, when we moved to his house, uh, we were the last house at the end of a dead end dirt road uh, surrounded by, he owned 115 acres of mostly empty fields and trees and woods. So we were physically very isolated as well, and for much of that time that we were there, for all of that time we were there, uh, we felt isolated too because we were—we felt distinctly my mother and, and me uh, primarily—that uh, we were always the second family, right? We were the we were the backup family because he was married previously before too. So we spent a good chunk of our lives in this isolation, in this uh, both physically and emotionally, uh, and feeling trapped in that place. And you know, I think young kids whatever you're surrounded by kind of sinks in and internalizes. So I internalized a lot of that, uh, that sense of isolation, uh, that sense of uh, you're not supposed to talk about your emotions. You're just supposed to be a man and suck it up. I think I internalized a lot of that. And I realized much later that the critical voice in my own head uh, often said a lot of the same things to me that my stepfather said to me too. So I think I had internalized a lot of his um, hyper-masculine kind of, criticism that he was likely subjected to, I imagine, by his own father as well. So this, this is, I think, reflective of how the cycles of trauma are often intergenerational, that, that we perpetuate our own hurtness onto others too.
1: Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families
0: in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
1: My guest is Mark Hennick, author of So-Called Normal, a memoir of family depression and resilience in which he writes about his own past mental health challenges and attempted suicide. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. If you had been raised in a more stable domestic environment with a mom and dad's backyard, loving neighbors and a loving community and a support system, would your mental health have been different? I assume the answer is yes. Or is there something else going on as well that can trigger psychosis?
2: Yeah. You know, I think I was probably at risk anyway, um, whether it be genetically or neurologically, biologically, whatever. Um, but I do think it would have been better because we know that people who have genes for uh, or seem to have genetic uh, predisposition for mental illnesses who have a family history of mental illness that it is highly dependent on their environment, whether or not those genes or those risk factors get switched on. So I think, yes, I would have had uh, an easier time um, had I had a different environment, no question. Now that said, I want to preface that in two ways. Um, I also wouldn't be who I am today if not for who I was then and what I went through. So I don't spend a whole lot of time you know, wishing things had been different. I mean, I, I probably did or I did for a good chunk of my life. Um, but once I was able to actually stop doing that and and uh, and start uh, start seeing my life as something that happened for me rather than to me, uh, then that really helped unlock my own agency in many ways. And resilience is all about um, how you get up when you fall. Resilience isn't about avoiding hard times. You know, there is something um, there is some uh, some Irish Catholic wisdom in the idea that life is hard um, because it is. Uh, and you have to expect that. And being mentally healthy doesn't mean that you avoid hard times. It means that you can support each other. That you have skills to get through those hard times. So it's it's a it's a it's not a resignation to the fact that life is hard, but rather a a, a mindful awareness that life is hard uh, and that it can indeed um, uh, you can indeed extract good things from it. So I'm I'm glad for, I wouldn't wish it on anybody else, but I'm glad for what I've been able to do uh, through those struggles because of those struggles.
1: You're in a much better place today. You are a professional in the field. You uh, speak at different events and you've written your book. Tell us a little bit about the book. Uh, So it's called So-Called Normal and you identify and name a lot of characters. You didn't disguise any of the names. You decided to go quite public about everything.
2: Uh, most of them. I did change uh, a, a number of the names, and I, I preface this in in the um, early pages because um, you know what's more important to me is the story uh, than the individual uh, people now, right? It, it, it's um, I, I say in my author's note that this is my truth um, because we all, uh, I think, um, are impacted differently by the things that happen to us. So there were some names, there were many names, in fact, actually, that I just wasn't able to change that we had to. Leave uh, as they really were because they were so central to the story. Um, But a number of the supporting cast, uh, so to speak, uh, uh, their names weren't central, so we did change them.
1: Where is everybody today, and where did they all end up? You know, I'm sure some of your relatives have have passed away, and what what are they doing? Mm -hmm. Have you reconciled with any of the bullies?
2: Yeah. So, you know, still most people don't uh, or many people, I should say, don't leave Cape Breton. Um, it's still very much uh, and for a long time. It was hard. I remember when I first went away to college, it was hard to go back there uh, over the years because it seemed like nothing ever changed. It was like it was frozen in time. Um, and I think that's true for many small towns. But, you know, since uh, over the course of writing the book and even even in as I was finishing writing the book, several people who are in the book uh, died. Uh, Even just as I was uh, going through the writing and editing uh, phases. Um, So people have some people have passed on, um, you know, unsurprisingly, as a result of writing the book, that your truth is sometimes uh, not going to mesh with other people's truths. Um, Sometimes things that happen to you, uh, other people, other people sometimes rather that you keep your traumas private. (laughs) <laughs> and that's unfortunately for them, not the way that I work. Um, I need to be able to process my own story. As the writer Anne Lamont has famously said, you own everything that happened to you. Uh, so so tell your story. Um, and that's what I have done. In terms of reconciliation, the most healing thing that I have ever done has been to write this book for myself, because it helped me to reconcile many of the things that have happened to me. Um, reconciliation is also a two-way street, however, and, and both parties, I think, and that's something that both parties uh, need to both work toward and want to work toward. Um, there's also boundaries there where you realize that other people are on their own journeys too. So, you know, I think of the cast of characters that have uh, appeared in the book, some of them have since passed on, some of them, uh, you know, have, are still there uh, to this day, and uh, I'm off living my own life. Uh, so I think that that's the best we can all do.
1: I want to take you back to growing up. You mentioned your Irish background, your Catholic faith. Did that play much of a role in your life? I mean, it's interesting to listen to how the Irish would have done it traditionally and just suck it up, offer it up, which really, I guess, is a Christian Catholic virtue mm. and just the concept of redemptive suffering. But the idea of psychology and mental health therapy would have been dismissed by an earlier generation of Irish Catholics. Mm. Don't go near that. Your stepdad couldn't understand that either. I was listening to a very uh, conservative Catholic talk show, they were talking about the idea of Catholic mental health and psychology. So maybe Mm -hmm. it has entered that realm. But when you were growing up in the church and the priests and everything, people who you would look up to as leaders, were Mm -hmm. they able to guide you, give you any reassurance, sort of tell you what was going on in your mind?
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's the the church and Catholicism played a, a really pivotal role, I think, in my in my upbringing, in my life, and still I think much of my core philosophical beliefs, my my moral formation, in many ways, is deeply Catholic, philosophically. Um, you know, I I like many people uh, am probably a bad not probably I am a bad Catholic in some ways. Um, Uh, um, But I think that uh, my core foundation has been formed by the ideas of mercy, of love, uh, uh, um, of redemptive suffering. That's a a concept that I resonate very deeply with. Uh, And the fact is that when everything else was spinning around me, when everything else seemed uncertain and changing, um, I was an altar boy for, for 13 years, I think, because I knew that every time I would go to the church, it would always be exactly the same. And that's exactly what I needed Uh, in some ways, in some times in my life that functioned as a crutch. Uh, And I think at other times in my life, it it, uh, served different purposes. Uh, But I noticed even well after, as I started traveling more, you know, when I moved moved off uh, to undergrad and then I moved to the States for a while for uh, graduate school. And when I did that, almost always one of the first places that I would seek out would be the local Catholic church because I didn't know anything else, but I knew what to expect there. Uh, and I was a I was a kid and 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 was an adult. I think it's less true today, but was an adult who really sought sought out structure. I really sought out predictability, uh, and I could always rely on that. Um, you know, I had a, our parish priest at the time uh, was uh, necessarily I think very important for me. And one of the lines that I wrote in the book when he came to visit me after a, a, I had. Um, um, induced into a coma as a result of a fight that I had with, with, with a bully at our school. I guess it, it surpasses bullying by that point if they knock you out in the parking lot. But uh, anyway, um, the priest came because I was put under. I was on a ventilator. Uh, and I was told later that because I was unconscious, obviously, that he had prayed uh, parts of the last rites over me in case you know I, I were to die. And every when I I remember when I wrote it, this is many years later, and every single time I edited it, and we edited, we went through I think twelve edits of the book or something. Every single time I came to those lines of absolution, I cried because it still so deeply affected me that I sought out forgiveness. I think I realized I sought out uh, mercy because I felt uh, that I had internalized so much of that guilt and blame for my own struggle. So you know, I think. Um, uh, the church, uh, you know, to get back to your question, the church and the people in it, the priests in it, uh, have been incredibly influential uh, in my own upbringing. And, and there's a blurb on the back of the book from Father James Martin as well, for those uh, well, him, uh, who know him, who who reflected on the story a bit too. Redeemer
1: Church was your parish church, and then I recall your Aunt Martha gave you these red rosary beads, and you mm-hmm. carried them around when you are in the psych ward, and I do remember the last rites. Um, that was pretty striking father Raold
2: right that's Father Rarel yeah and then he later uh, he, he was one of the characters who later died, but was incredibly influential uh, in my life. He was this big, towering figure. He was probably about six, six at least, and he had this mm-hmm. deep booming voice and in, in almost every way he was a father figure uh, in my life and and I remember there was much more about him and about the church in earlier drafts of the book. Um, a lot of that that came out just because I had the, the draft was twice as long as it was supposed to be. But uh he was an incredibly influential um person and and teacher, I think, in many ways in my life.
1: You also had some kind of I don't know if religious nightmares is the right word, but you woke up out of dreams and there were some kind of demons saying to you, you are not the Christ. I mean. That was quite frightening. It was like something out of a horror show. What was the significance of that? And why mm-hmm. did you mention it in the book?
2: Yeah, you know, m- much of my dream life, and I was intensely, still am intensely fascinated by uh, my own dreams as, as more of a reflection of what's going on in my own head. But um, uh, many of them had religious kind of uh, undertones or overtones, for that matter. And that was one of them that was that was quite explicitly religious. There's this, this demon, uh, who was, uh, with me that I was trapped on a school bus and we were just going back and forth on our dead end dirt road. And this, this demon turning around and telling me that I'm not the Christ. And why I put it in the book, um, was because I think it was really reflective. It was so reflective. It, and it was right on the cusp of in, in the book when I had been feeling a little bit better was, but was about to decline again. So it was almost, um, a premonition dream in some ways too, because I was feeling this need to control or to redeem or to resurrect or whatever whatever that symbology, that Christ symbology meant, um, this demon coming to me and, and basically reminding me that I'm not in control, that I can't save anybody or myself. And I think in some ways it was reflective too. Uh, another There's there several reasons why it's in the book. It was reflective of that vo- the voice of my depression in my head to tell me that I'm powerless against this illness, that I'm powerless against this, uh, you know, the, the, the voice of depression that lies to you uh, or, or the enemy's voice, whatever it might be. You know, I think there are so many tie-ins here, both with religious imagery, as well as, you know, the types of experiences that people have when they're depressed and suicidal. So I think that was a, a key moment for me, uh, that dream that I really saw as a, as a touch point for when I was starting to become more sick.
1: Where do you see the state of mental health in the world today, in the Western world, Canada and the US. We have a lot of new stressors. We have COVID-19, obviously, but we have a lot of a a frenzied economy. We have financial burdens and people's lives, unemployment, social media creates its own pressures, a sort of a self-indulgent materialistic culture creates issues, you know, and individualism out there, marital breakdown, marriage breakdown, so on. Is that much more mental health issues today than a few generations ago? or, Or can we even look at any statistics with reliability?
2: Yeah, you know, I think we're doing a reasonably good job now in terms of mental health awareness. Uh, we're having more conversations than we've ever had before. We know that um, from a demographic perspective, millennials, Gen Z and younger are more likely than any prior generation and the older generation to both recognize that they might be struggling with a mental health problem or illness uh, and then to reach out and to ask for help to actually seek out services to address their their mental health struggles. That's a great thing. And it, and we see a stark difference between millennials and Gen X or, or baby boomers and older. Um, So I think that's a good thing. And it is reflective of the good progress that we've made in mental health awareness. However, um, I don't think we have scratched very deeply beneath the surface of mental health stigma. Uh, of system reform. You know, our systems are still archaic and, and uh, Byzantine in terms of their organization. They often inflict more trauma on people, uh, whether it be through putting them on wait lists for a year or bouncing them through treatment trials of stuff that we don't even know if it works. We're just throwing a bunch of treatment at them and seeing what sticks. Um, so there's not a lot of precision still in mental health care. There's not a lot of standards in terms of care delivery. Um, Not all therapists are created equal. Not all medications are created equal, but there's still kind of a big glob of services that we foist foist upon people very often. Um, So people are are frequently still left to bounce around in a system that not only is broken, but that was never built properly to begin with. (laughs) You know, the mental health care system isn't really designed to help people the way they need to be helped. So I think that's the next um, push uh, in terms of. And it's a generational push in many ways in terms of making a more holistic mental health care system that actually recognizes that trauma impacts people, that adverse childhood events impact people uh, and their mental health, uh, that, so, that, that the social determinants of health are often more uh, impactful uh, than somebody's uh, biological or neurological people. So I think that's, that's the next phase and that's ideally what we're working toward now.
1: Well, you have an insider's view of it. You went through all this trauma. You were in psych wards at a very young age. You're medicated. You were diagnosed by social workers, psychiatrists and experts. And you mentioned how there was a lot of contradictions and things that sort of didn't line up. That's kind of disturbing if, if different experts in the same field are saying different things.
2: Well, this is it. And, and it's not even uh, uncommon. Um, I experienced this when I worked as a clinician myself many years later, uh, talking to many different doctors, bringing clients to various hospitals, or, or um, uh, trying to get their needs met through various service providers. Uh, and it's still a highly subjective uh, uh, field. It's more art in many ways than science. But unfortunately, it doesn't have to be. This is what frustrates me is that there's so much science, especially in the last 20 years or so, uh, in terms of the best ways to treat people with mental health problems and illnesses, the best forms of treatments, but policy and politics often get in the way. Um, Availability of service providers get in the way. It's a system organization piece. The the science is is 10, 20 years ahead of where we are in in terms of a service delivery um, mechanism in virtually every country. Um, So we know that people with even severe mental health problems and illnesses, um, recovery is not only possible, recovery is expected, recovery is likely when they get the help that they need. Uh, But the problem is that people aren't getting access to those services, or they're not getting access soon enough, or to the amount that they need. Uh, And that's a real problem. And that's a that's a system organization problem.
1: Are serious mistakes being made, whereby some People are being over prescribed, not being prescribed or given the wrong diagnosis and not being brought into intervention early enough.
2: Yes, all the time. And I think, um, you know, so often uh, the diagnostic process, uh, most antidepressants uh, are given as prescriptions by family doctors rather than psychiatrists or specialists. And normally, you know, that's okay, because that's kind of your frontline treatment in some ways, but it doesn't have to be the case. Many family docs or, or general practitioners aren't particularly trained uh, in psychiatry or, or how these medications work. Um, when you actually look at the, the research behind many of these medications, many, you know, some of them work pretty well for some people, but many of them don't work any better than placebo or only marginally better than, than placebo or, or sugar pills. Um so medication can be very helpful. It ended up being helpful for me eventually after I went through more than a dozen different medications to find the right one that eventually worked. Um but that's the problem is that we're just throwing a bunch of darts at the dartboard. We're not really getting deep into people's stories. We're we're not we didn't have at that time genetic testing for example to see what kinds of medications might work better for some people versus others and that's that kind of science still isn't widely available, not widely used. Um, So I think there are so many problems here with misdiagnosis, with misprescribing, with uh, ineffective treatments that people go through all these treatment trials or they go through three or four medications or whatever it might be. And then they feel like like I felt that they are the problem, that if these these treatments are not working, if they're not getting better and they've been through three or four or five or more treatment trials and it's not working, maybe it means they're unhelpable. No, that's not at all what it means. It's not the person's fault who's struggling. It's the, it's the, it's the science's fault. It's the medicine's fault. It's not your fault uh, that they couldn't figure out how to, to treat what you're going through. So that's where I, I think um, the system is actively hurting people by putting people through so many, so much just to try to start to feel better uh, that it ends up inflicting more harm. Now, the other side of this too, is that, that you're not going to find a happy pill. That fixes you. That fixes your mood. That's just not. And I think it's it does a disservice to people to say that eventually we're going to find the gene uh, that will make you happy, or eventually we're going to find the right, the exact medication that's going to cure your depression. Don't hold your breath, because there are so many other factors at play here, particularly for anxiety disorders and and. Uh, and related illnesses, where we have to do the work. That's an old psychotherapy phrase. You have to do the work to really learn the coping mechanisms. Uh, and that's not something that a medication can help you do. So I think we need to find that happy balance between uh, using medication as it's, as it's intended to help people uh, get to the place where they can do the work uh, in a more meaningful way. And the second half of that equation is still missing.
1: Tell us about your life today and your practice and how you got here.
2: I love my life today. You know, I get to do exactly—I get to do what I do. What a wonderful thing! Um, I get to write books about my experience and to speak to audiences and do workshops and podcasts and uh, and articles. I get to do exactly what I want to do, and and I'm so fortunate. uh, I used to be kind of hard on myself for this because if I get bored of doing something, I just do something else instead. And I used to be hard on myself for that because thinking that I lacked focus, but really. I have been so privileged, so grateful to be able to explore so many different parts of the mental health space because I still am so intensely interested in all of it. Um, And what a gift, you know. I have a a beautiful wife now, three wonderful children. Uh, I get, I have a career that I love. Uh, It really is wonderful. You know, there's lots of hard times too, um, but that's okay. And when I approach hard times now, uh, it's through a very different lens, I think. So. You know, I I get to do uh, exactly what I love. And I'm so grateful that I didn't kill myself when I was so convinced that I wanted to. You know, I thought when I was 15 years old that I absolutely needed to do that. uh, And I'm so grateful that I didn't because look at the life that I have now. It's such a wonderful, wonderful gift that I've been able to live this life.
1: If somebody is feeling suicidal and is feeling traumatized and in distress, what's your advice to call? A mental health line or a suicide prevention line because we can put that number up and mm-hmm. we can mention it before and after the show
2: well certainly don't keep it a secret don't keep your struggles a secret there's no reason it, it, it's a it, it turns into a toxic poison inside you uh, that there's no reason uh, to keep it a secret that you're not going to be Treated differently, And if there are people who treat you differently for opening up about your vulnerability, then they're not your people. Maybe you don't want those people in your life if they're going to treat you differently uh, for having a mental health problem or illness. But what I've also found, too, is that generally we work it up in our own head to be a bigger deal than it often is to open up. Uh, that when you do open up, you will find a whole community of people who are either going through it right now, too, uh, or who have been through it and gotten to the other side of the mountain, people like me. Uh, So I'm so grateful that I opened up way back, you know, in in high school uh, about my struggles because it really helped me to find my purpose and to find my tribe. Uh, And I hope that other people who are struggling can do that, too. Um, If you are immediately at risk, if you're thinking of suicide or self-harm, if you're very actively struggling, that's even more important to reach out, to look for your local uh, suicide prevention hotline, uh, local warm lines, go to the hosp if you need to. Um, because these, these services are designed to keep you safe. Uh, and that's good. You want to stay safe and alive. So that way you can uh, do the work uh, and figure out how you can give your experience back.
1: Did you ever imagine when you were young that today you would be this celebrated figure in many ways? You're well known. Your YouTube talk on the TEDx talk got over 3 million views and you've been interviewed by various celebrities and you give all these talks. Um, you couldn't just have imagined that when you were younger.
2: Yeah, no, I, I never would have imagined it then. I can't really imagine it now because <laughs> I'm just, I just plug along and I do my work. And, you know, every now and then something really cool or really big will happen along the way. And I'm so privileged you know, to have been able to do that. I reflect back on my life and I think about sitting at Oscar nominated actress Glenn Close's kitchen table uh, or sitting in in Rosie O'Donnell's art room while we just chat. Um, You you were interviewed by Rosie. yeah, uh, I interviewed Rosie. Yeah, oh, you interviewed um, Rosie, the
1: other way around. Okay, I, I
2: did, and she was she was such a warm, um, inviting uh, person, and, and really a really wonderful support in in uh, writing the book and otherwise. But you know, I reflect on those times in my life, and I think who was like who? It just seems it seems so strange to me, and I don't I don't put a lot of. Um, you know, I don't invest too much in it either. Cause like I say, you just keep, I keep my head down. I do the work every now and then I pop up. And it's usually those things that people see, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a cliche to say, but they don't see the, the 10 or 20 or hundred failures that happen in between those high points. Nobody sees the valleys, um, <laughs> but like anything else, you, you use the valleys uh, to get to the peak. And, and that's what I've been doing uh, for my entire career. And that's what I continue, uh, what I plan to continue doing.
1: Not sure how far you are today geographically from your hometown, your ancestral home of Cape Breton, because do you make visits back to see family and friends, hang out in some of those? I, I hope there's a few Irish pubs in, in, in the town. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, put, few, I put, yeah, in, in my background, I have Irish pubs just for you, Mark.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. There, there's not too many, uh, but but there are, of course. Uh, drinking is a is a popular pastime in many small towns. But no, I don't get back very much. you know, particularly because of the pandemic. But even prior to that, um, unfortunately, it hasn't been uh, hasn't been all that frequently. But you know, once the restrictions start to lift again and, and the world gets back to some semblance of uh, uh, whatever next normal will be, then I look forward to my next trip back.
1: Well, we're going to wrap up soon, but you did mention COVID. And just quickly, from a professional's point of view, um, how has that impacted Canada and your work? I'm sure you're getting a lot of calls to pontificate about it, but also to advise people how to deal with the social isolation. It's tough.
2: Um, very early on, and still, we're concerned about people who had um, previously had risk factors for depression or people who had already had depression or anxiety. Um, but I think, in some ways, we uh, people with with previous mental illnesses were better prepared uh, for this uh, because we were we had to actively learn coping mechanisms for feelings of isolation, for feelings of stress and burnout. Ideally, anyway. Um, but what ended up happening was that people who didn't have a prior diagnosis or a prior overt concern for a mental health problem or illness, they started getting new, even more new cases of depression and anxiety coming up. And I think that's because, you know, so many people were just sidelined by this. They didn't see it coming. They didn't realize that they needed to develop coping mechanisms for isolation and loneliness because they never had to deal with it before. Uh, Well, now uh, being faced with it for, you know, a year now, um, it has really been wearing on people. You know, I think not to not to over silver line it or anything, um, but I think one of the benefits of the past year has been that it's really forced people to look inward uh, that it's really forced people to to develop skills of self care uh, that they didn't have before. So I hope that we, as we come out of this, ideally uh, that that we remember the skills that we learned over the last year uh, in terms of reaching out to others and taking care of ourselves that we carry forward.
1: Books called so called normal. And it's by Mark Hannick. And it's been my pleasure talking to you, Mark. And I hope we gather again uh, post-COVID. And I'll stay in touch. Keep up the good work.
2: Great talking to you. Thank you so much, John. Take care.
0: You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973 664 9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.